0: Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey presto, no ads.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has
0: professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but
1: might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: This podcast is powered by ACAST.
2: How are you doing there? It is time again for the podcast. And today we are going to be talking about liberal democracy. Liberal democracy as we know it in Ireland and how it is under threat. It is under threat from an increasing amount of right-wing votes all around Europe. We know that. It is under threat from the fact that Trump is ahead in the polls in the United States, quite far ahead in the polls now, although I suppose polls a year out don't really tell you anything because things tend to clarify and crystallise as we get close to the election. We spoke last week about Javier Millet and that bizarre form of libertarianism which we see emerging in Argentina, and we said, you know, maybe Argentina it's kind of understandable given how much of a mess the Peronists have made of Argentina. But Millet emerges as a different type of politician, not only as an economist, but he's also a tantric sexologist, John, which is a career that's all ahead of me. And a cosplay enthusiast, I believe. What is cosplay? I Just dressing up. Oh, he likes that, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, likes yeah, that? yeah, Okay, that's <laughs> interesting. He's also, uh, he also communes uh, with his, you knew with that, his dead dog. Well, I go out on a Friday night regularly uh, as Siobhan. Uh, didn't you know that? But the whole world politics is shifting on its axis. And then one thing that I believe is not necessarily been discussed enough or analysed enough is the role of Israel in this firmament. Oh? So if you think, right, that Hamas is an adjunct of Iran. Yeah, okay. And Iran is an adjunct of Russia. And Russia is a client state of China. All of these players have an interest in undermining Western values, Western democracies, the West. Mm. So Russia is fighting a war in Ukraine in order to destabilize the European Union. That's the end game. China is supporting Russia because it doesn't need to do anything because Russia is doing its dirty work. Russia supports Iran. Iran supports Russia. All those Iranian drones that have been shot down in Ukraine are Iranian. And Iran, of course, supports Hezbollah and Hamas. And what they are doing is they are constantly ratcheting up pressure on a variety of fronts against our crowd, which is the European Union and the United States, Mm. who are conjoined by history, by politics, by culture, and by this attachment to this notion of democracy, however flawed it may well be, and underpinning all that is the notion of elections and democratic change, right? Mm-hmm. But Iran ain't into democratic change. No, Russia ain't into democratic change. China ain't into democratic change. So there's actually a serious, serious new cold war evolving. So where's this headed to? Well, well, well I tell you what interests me. There's many things of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that fascinate me. We've had very, very good feedback across a whole lot of things on those series we did on Israel and Palestine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. will come back to it, but here's the here's the thing: in Israel and Palestine, there's a variety of choices. Right. One is the Palestinians need to make a decision as to whether or not their mandate is to refuse the Jews to have a state. Or is it to build up their own state? So I think at this moment, a lot of Palestinian energy goes into what we call a negative mandate, which is basically saying, you've screwed us over so much that yeah. we're going to do whatever we can to make sure you guys don't have a state. Yeah, yeah. And a negative mandate is in a very, very powerful mandate, right? That's the first thing. The Israelis, on the other hand, have to make a decision. Are they a democracy that behaves by democratic rules, which they say they are, mm-hmm. or are they turning into an Iranian-style theocracy that is a Jewish state and a Jewish state first. Yes. So they're not a million miles away. Netanyahu's coalition is not a million miles away from a Jewish fundamentalist coalition. Absolutely. I mean, it's moving the same direction as a theocracy. Yeah. So they've got to decide that too, right? But it's the American unconditional support of Israel that I think will in the future be questioned because it threatens the Western status quo. Because what the Russians the Iranians, the Chinese have figured out is that Israel is, we spoke about it before, the wedge issue yeah. that divides Europe from America, right? Divides European politics from their own street and is something that animates so much the left here. And I'm talking about the extreme left. Yeah, yeah. The extreme left's position is always anti-American. So there's a thing in extreme left ideology called entryism, John. And I think this is what's going on here. Go on, What's that? explain that one. So entryism is a Trotskyite term for a strategy which is about entering into the political mainstream, using wedge issues to enter in. So the Trotskyites and the extreme left know that their package of beliefs is unattractive to most people. Yeah. So what they try to do is they find one issue that they can coalesce around and that they can actually enlist non-left-wing people into.
0: Okay, right. Entryism. Right.
2: So for example, a great example of that was the water charges here. The people before profit people realised this is something that galvanises everybody. Yeah. Because we didn't pay for water before. Now we're paying for water before. Privatising this company. That means our water that we never paid for before is going to go to these guys. They're going to privatise it. It's going to go to shareholders. Yeah. Everybody said no.
0: Yeah.
2: But the left understood that this was an issue that they could own. And if they owned it, they could prize a gap in the mainstream mm. and they could get followers. So that's called entryism. So they so,
0: this idea. And, and similarly now, the, the whole idea of immigration.
2: Immigration is exactly the same thing. It's, yeah. it, but but the, the left cannot, because the left is an internationalist ideology, it cannot be seen to be anti-immigrant, right? So they've got to figure out, they've got to figure out a way in there, okay. right? Okay, okay. But Palestine is a classic win-win situation mm. because nobody in the right mind, thinks that bombing civilians from an Apache helicopter, when those civilians don't have any
1: yeah.
2: air defences, don't have any defences, yeah, they don't yeah. have any mechanised infantry, they have nothing. They have right? no army. They have no, assist- army. Yeah. They have <laughs> no army, they have no <laughs> heavy machinery, they have nothing. Yeah. But to come back to my overall point, Israel has the potential to be the hill upon which the American liberal order collapses because the wedge has been driven between America and Europe. All the time, Russia, China, Iran can turn on and off this Hamas switch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, I think that what happened is something, I think that this was all figured out in advance. Although Hamas said they didn't tell anybody. I think the idea was that Iran and Hamas would have felt that had they attacked Israel, okay, this would have set off a variety of domino effects, one of which would be the Western Street would be inflamed. Yeah. Right? I don't think they expected the Americans to be as committed to the Israelis as they have been. I think this was something that was not figured out. I don't think they expected the Germans... to be as committed, the yeah. Germans as well, to be as committed to the Israelis as they have been. I think what they probably thought was that there will be a reaction, a counter-reaction, and then there will be an early ceasefire, right? I don't think they thought that the Americans would give the Israelis permission, which they have done, in yeah. effect, to behave as they are. But now we're in the second phase. We're after the first ceasefire. Now we're in the second phase of, of this appalling war. Yeah. and. The longer it goes on, the more America loses credibility. The longer the Israelis bomb Palestinians, the more America loses credibility, the more difficult it is to hold the line in Europe, because European elites are pro-Israeli. Yeah. And the more this stuff comes up from the bottom. Now, all this is coming against a global environment, John, where America was on The ascendancy in Ukraine, nobody expected the Europeans to actually behave in a unified fashion as we have done against Russia. Yeah. yeah. Nobody expected the Europeans to be able to wean themselves off Russian gas. Nobody expected the Europeans to be as united. But now they're atrophying. And as you said to me, Biden seems to have got into bed with Netanyahu in a way in which he can't move. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't move. But the interesting thing, as I was saying before as well, just before we we, we were having a long discussion, by the way, before we came we on... We were having now, a long discussion <laughs>
2: about pigs, super pigs. John is obsessed with the super pig. <laughs> the invasion of super pigs. The invasion of super, for, for, and other stuff.
0: No, but... Usually it's music, but it wasn't music today. But it was also the fact that if Trump gets in next year, he has a massive problem with Netanyahu. So the whole policy and attitude towards Israel may change if Trump gets in. Well, well I mean, it would be
2: amazing if the Americans change their policy on Israel, right? Well, see, Trump is but, is has formed, and the thing is, the thing is, Netanyahu will be gone next year. I think there's very much the Israeli. All the polls are saying that people want him out. But but that's the
0: thing, with you know, it's a little bit like Zelensky. That there, there was rumblings of changing Zelensky as well, but. These things don't really happen in the middle of a conflict. So, so yeah.
2: So so. But once this conflict is over, and it will. I mean, but like, it could we, drag on we, for we know forever. That the two state solution is the only way. But we know the two state solution is based on one: the Israelis choosing to be a liberal democracy and not a theocracy. Number yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. And number two: on the Palestinians shifting as a long term objective from a negative mandate to a positive mandate to accepting look, the Israelis aren't going anywhere. Mm. There's 7 million of them. There's 7 million of us. Yeah, yeah. That's the deal, right? That ain't going to change, yeah. right? But my point is that the legitimacy of our system, the legitimacy of Western liberalism stems from unity around certain issues. And that unity is atrophying and it's atrophying because of Gaza. And I think this is a much bigger play that's going on. And this is going to be the long-term ramifications.
0: But Mac, here's a question for you. You know, there's been a a huge shift over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And a political shift, I mean. And how much of that is related to the whole change in globalisation, the pandemic as well, which was a a huge economic shock, and also even stretching back to 2008?
2: 2008 is still very much alive because the reaction to 2008 was austerity. So basically, austerity always affects the poor more than the rich, because the poor are always more dependent on the state. So if your business is reducing the size of the state, you have an amplified impact on the little guy and the poor guy. That's the first thing. The second thing is the monetary policy reaction was, so if you think about economics, there's fiscal and monetary policy. There's two Two arms. I I always look at it like a two-armed boxer, right? Yeah, yeah. You go into the ring with both of your arms ready to punch, right? If you impose austerity, so you tighten fiscal policy, you affect the poor more. Mm. But if you try to offset that with what they call a loose monetary policy, which is low interest rates, what you do is you reward the owners of assets more. Yes. Right? So what you have is this bizarre situation where the owners of assets became profoundly enriched by policy. And who owns assets? Rich people. Yeah, That's why they're rich. They own shit, right? The dependence of the state, the poorer people, become totally and utterly dislocated by austerity. So you get inequality. So that's the background noise. And of course, inequality is the absolute fertilizer for radicalism. Right?
0: Yes. And yeah. the
2: radicalism we saw in this part of the world or across the water was Brexit, and there was Trump, then all these various movements that we're seeing now mm. bubbling up under the surface. So you're absolutely right. Had the reaction to 2008 been different, a lot of the legitimate grievances would not necessarily have been there, but they are there. Mm. And then you superimpose upon this geostrategic problems, Russia deciding after 2008 you know what, that democracy stuff, we're not part of that game. Yes. That G8 stuff, that's not really our stuff. Yeah. China under Xi, which we're going to talk to Eric about, deciding being part of that Western democracy, that's not part of our game yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. So you get all this change. And then, of course, you have what was referred to as the global south moving, whether it's in Argentina or Brazil or South Africa or Indonesia, or only the big players basically vacillating between various different types of politics. Yeah. So... You're absolutely right. 2008 is a a huge moment. And even further back is the fall of the Berlin Wall, which begins the process whereby people believe liberal democracy is the way forward. So let's tease out these things with, as I said, it's like the Reith Lectures. It's the Eric Lonergan Lectures. It's part three. You know, the Reith Lectures are these kind of big brainy people in the BBC who do these things, you know. Now we're going to talk about this, right? So this, this is our version of the Reith Lectures. It's the Eric Lonergan series. It's the third part, the last part. And we're going to talk about, is there a link between liberal democracy, as understood since the fall of the Berlin Wall, and prosperity as experienced between 1990 and, let's say now, in many parts of the world. If there is, and we're going into a world of illiberal democracy, of much more autocratic systems across the world, then will the price of that be a lack of prosperity and the economy, the global economy, going backwards? So big questions, let's go to London and ask a big brain all about them. So this is part three of our series with Eric Lunnigan, and I hope you enjoyed the last two parts. I found them absolutely fascinating on Patreon. People are coming back and saying they were fascinating. Likewise on Twitter. So we're getting a very good sense that people have enjoyed this. The third issue here is a really big one. It's freedom, democracy and prosperity. Is there a link? And if there is a link, what does the future hold, Eric? Great to see you again. How are you? You probably are sick of me at this stage.
1: Not at all. Far from it. I'm nearly as excited as you are. <laughs> Hesitate <laughs> to suggest even maybe even more. <laughs> <laughs> it's steady on. Exactly. Exactly. There,
2: you know, there's there's there's, there's fellas get excited by football, and fellas get excited by we get excited by f- prosperity and freedom and thinking. Okay, Eric, give me your sense, right? We're going into an electoral cycle, of course. The big one is the United States, but there's many others. And it is, for the first time in a long time, a choice between people who believe in democracy and institutions and liberty and liberalism and people who don't. And the people who don't are not so much in the ascendancy, but they're neck and neck in major countries. We could well have, by the end of this year, a President Trump. We had Ed Luce a couple of weeks ago telling us, well, look, Trump has told you what he's going to do. When he gets in, and a lot of things, what he's going to do is retribution, revenge, using the state against yeah. his enemies. We've heard that before, and I don't like the sound of it, but we've heard it before. So explain to me this link that we're going to explore between freedom, liberalism, and economic prosperity.
1: Yeah, so the, the, a bit of historical context will help us here and if we think in terms of what conventional wisdom was in sort of political organization, economic organization 30 years ago. You've just completed, or you completed earlier this year, the Grand Tour of Europe. I was reflecting on a lot of these matters as I listened to your uh, dulcet tones coming through on the podcast. Um, (laughs) Now, one of the conventional wisdoms at the time was that the end of the Cold War was not just a victory to capitalist free markets, i.e. that economic freedom gave us greater prosperity. There was also a conventional wisdom that hand in hand with that was democracy. And to some extent, the recent economic history of China has threatened that consensus. Yeah. Because it appears to be the case that you can persist with, in fact, totalitarian or a dictatorial political system, a single party without elections, and yet you can have economic prosperity. Now, I think in the last three, four, five years, that conviction, may start to be questioned. And that issue in China may, in fact, be coming to a head. And there's there's a host of reasons why I think that issue is worth exploring. Perhaps most fundamentally, though, now compared to 30 years ago, is China, if you look at it in volume terms, so not in terms of the dollar amount, but in volume terms, it is by some distance now the largest economy in the world. And what happens in China will affect all all of us. And ideally what we want is not just that China is a peaceful partner, but actually that China is prosperous because Mm -hmm. it will actually affect our economic opportunities.
2: So let's look therefore at China. Let's take China for two periods. It's interesting. So we started the end of the Cold War in Europe between Europe, America, and Russia. But in the same period, the Chinese begin with, Tiananmen Square. So you've got two very, very different outcomes 30 years ago. You've got the European outcome, which is embracing democracy. You have the Chinese outcome, which is Tiananmen Square, which is doing the opposite. So explain to me then those two phases of Chinese rule, let's say the first 15 years and the second 15 years, and then put them into the context of what we're discussing about the link between freedom and prosperity.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's a great framing. And this is also very timely because I think it's also very important how China now looks at Russia in the context of the Ukraine and other sorts of issues. I think the Chinese thought that the Russians made a massive strategic error, which is they actually started in many respects with political reform when they should have started with economic reform. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Chinese viewed this as, a, as an absolute catastrophe from a t- in terms of strategic policymaking, what happened to the Soviet Union. And so the lesson, if you're sitting in Beijing, was actually yes to economic reform, but absolutely no to political reform. And I suspect if, if you and I had gone to Beijing 20 years ago and had had frank conversations in the early hours of the morning with members of the elite in China, they'd have said, don't worry, the political reforms will come later. So I don't think it was a consensus that there would be some reinitiation of this kind of you know, control and power in the center. And I think that model worked spectacularly well. The Chinese started to gradually deregulate. They deregulated the agricultural sector. They engaged through the 1990s in pretty extraordinary opening up of coastal cities, special economic zones where they imported technology, effectively got lots of foreign direct investment. But they also achieved some quite extraordinary policy successes. So the the equivalent of the Chinese kind of rust belt, where all of the coal and steel industry is in the northeastern provinces, they managed to allow the private sector to take up the mantle of economic growth. They managed the decline of heavy industry. They restructured their banking system. They did fiscal stimulus. So it's an extraordinary phase of policymaking success. Now, the intriguing thing then is really in the last 10 years, the great hope that China would then open up politically appears to have been absolutely reversed. So Xi Jinping has kind of epitomized that. That's the current Chinese premier, where he's effectively become a sort of ruler for the foreseeable future. And there's been a very, very clear shift towards, actually, we are not going to eventually end up looking like some kind of Western democracy. Far from it. The Chinese model is superior. We're going to concentrate power. There's going to be no internal division. The Communist Party will dominate. And not only that, we're going to keep elements of the private sector that kind of get too big for their boots under control. So the big question now is can they do that, or is that coming at a political cost?
2: It's funny when you when you said that, you know, look, we'll do the economics reform now and the, the politics come later, it reminded me of a matchmaker in Listoon Varna, who's usually when they've got these two people together, they think it was look, like, just marry me now and the love will come later, right? So I kind of like that idea that basically, you know, we'll get used to each other. We live in the same house and, and you know, it'll all, it'll all work out. But are you saying that, that the manifest deceleration of the Chinese economy in the last five or six years is linked to the hardening of the autocratic bent and feel coming from Beijing? That you can't have economic growth without an element of
1: economic freedom. I'm coming around to that view. I think the evidence is starting to stack up in that direction. And I say that for a couple of reasons. There's, there's one interesting divergence, if you don't mind, but I think it's, it's a fascinating insight into understanding how economics work. You do a session at Kilconomics, there's, there's Keynes v. Hayek. Hayek had a brilliant insight into the superiority of the market economy. And it was actually all about the fact that the most important information in an economy is local to time and place. Explain that to me Explain that to me Well, right. So what he means by that is, is that, you know, what are you going to do this afternoon or whatever time you're doing the podcast, you're going to have lunch or breakfast. You know what you're planning to do this afternoon. You know what you want to buy when you go into a shop the preferences, your wants and your desires, you know what type of job you're going to do, you make a decision about your education. In other words, information that's relevant to our daily lives is actually in our heads, what we want to do, what we see in front of us, and is particular to time and place. Now, that's incredibly difficult for a central planner to work out. This is why Hayek argued against statistics and economics. He said the statistics don't have the important information because the important information is in somebody's mind. What decision are they going to make next? And the markets seem to be this amazing system where prices will respond. So if too many people go to the shop, the prices go up or there's a queue outside and we reallocate them, we start producing more in response to higher prices. So markets seem to have this amazing ability to synthesize the information that's specific to time and place. And Hayek, in a way, was then vindicated because the central planners, we all know the stories, you know, under communism, you run out of toothpaste, you know, you've too much grain. Yeah. The whole production system was misproducing all the time, precisely because they didn't have the information that was specific to the individual at any point in time. Now, China seemed again, maybe they squared this circle. So we liberalize the economy, we have freedom. But here's the challenge. If you take modern technology, and this relates to the discussion we had in the previous session on on AI and machine learning, but you just think of social media, you've now got access to information that is particular to time and place. And you've almost got information of access to the mind because you can predict what people are going to do. So I think Technology has played a big, big role in a change in political thinking in China because they're suddenly going, hang on a minute, these technology platforms have vast amount of knowledge and information about how human beings behave Mm -hmm. and what they're all up to. We can use this as a vehicle for control. That's the first point. The second point, I think, is that ultimately a successful economy disperses power. And what I mean by that is wealth creation starts to compete with the political class for where the power lies. Mm-hmm. And you see this even in America. You see, I think it's very interesting, like the whole issue of campaign finance. I mean, American politics is a battle, you know, with various parts of the capitalist system fighting with each other, whether they're pro or anti-Trump. But the key point, the really the key message here is that. If you're operating a political system with a social hierarchy where I'm head of the Communist Party, I'm in charge, we, the Politburo, set the rules that are implemented across the country, all of a sudden, then you have these billionaires. And these billionaires have huge amounts of power, huge amounts of information. And not only that, how do they interact with your political class? Do they start paying you to grant them opportunities and projects, of course, of course et, cetera, they do. Et, cetera, et cetera? Of course right? they do. That's how they behave. Now, that's the kind of hypothesis. And this could, in part, explain why there's been a change in thinking. They're terrified by the power that technology holds, but they see it as an opportunity to use the technology to control people. And at the same time, they're threatened by the emergence of these other sources of political power from within a successful capitalist system. And I, what it looks, appears to be the case is they've tightened the reins. They're putting pressure, they're downsizing. You know, you heard the famous case of Alibaba. They don't want to have these hugely successful, high-profile billionaires going around saying what they think they should be done. They want to keep, put them back in their box. They're clamping down on the profits and the success of areas of the technology sector. They're concentrating power. And I think one of the big dangers with that is that climate of fear conservatism comes with a very significant cost, which is you're unwilling to tackle risky, innovative economic problems. And I think we're starting to see evidence that a China that was extraordinary at solving problems has has become a China that's actually unable to solve some quite obvious problems that it's confronting.
2: And and it's because you would see, not not just not exclusively, but part of the problem is this sort of command and control structure that they're trying to put in, which in a way takes away the sovereignty of the average individual to try and fix things for themselves. And it's that sort of, it's it, you know, if you're kind of re-sovietizing the Chinese system in order to ingrain the Politburo, what you gain in power. You lose in inquiry and curiosity, and it's the inquiry and curiosity that drives the economy. And that's what they liberated 20 years ago, and that's what they're now clamping down on.
1: That's exactly right. And, And as you know, it's that creativity and idea generation that's important at every level in an economic system, because it's also important in policy. If you look at the 1990s, their policy solutions were incredibly creative and innovative. Let me give you an example. If you look at Hong Kong, one country, two systems, genius, very creative solution, where you can continue to live as Hong Kong, but you'll stay under the umbrella of a single country, but we can have two different systems. And the cleverness of that at the time was what a brilliant message to the Taiwanese. So it was have no fear, because China's creative. We come up with solutions. If we can have one country, two systems, why can't we have one country, three systems? What's happened? They've reversed. And now what's happened actually is, no, we no longer have the creativity of one country, two systems. It's one country, one system. And all of the economic freedoms have been clamped down in Hong Kong. You've seen a migration of skills, foreign direct investment, businesses leaving Hong Kong. And so I also see it at the level of policy making. They've lost their creativity because as you know, to be creative, you have to take risks. Are you going to take risks under a dictator?
2: No. And obviously to be creative, the assess- the essence of creativity is dissent. That's the key, right? So conformity by its very nature strangles creativity. So you have to embrace dissenters and weirdos and oddbods And people say, you know what, G screw you, I'm going this way. And G has to be secure enough in his own world to embrace this very very broad church and what we're what we're seeing is we're seeing the replication of this sort of looseness with a reversion to dogma and you believe that this dogma is now percolating into economic performance and this yeah. is and this will undermine
1: china over the course of the next 10 years this is absolutely right and let me give you some examples so There's two very striking macroeconomic deficiencies in China. One is consumption as a share of GDP. Right. So if you contrast it with most economies, relative to GDP, we would typically consume almost twice what China is consuming. So that means for the amount of national income they generate, actually households are only benefiting about a half or two thirds of how much they should benefit. Yeah. So they do too much investment. It's almost the opposite to the problem in the rest of the world. The Chinese have been consistently over investing, building too much at the expense of, of consumption. Now, that problem has been recognized for at least a decade. And it's been recognized if you, I used to go to China five or 10 years ago and have conversations with policymakers. They say we have to raise consumption as a share of GDP. They've singularly failed. And if you look at post-COVID, the recovery in consumption has been the weakest post-COVID. They've become more reliant than ever, ironically, on export-led, investment-led growth. That's the first one. The second one is they've singularly failed to create a proper tax base. So you don't have a proper income tax system. You don't have a proper value-added tax system in China. Now, that may seem, is there anything dollar or less interesting that actually it has profound ramifications for how you run your economy, right? Yeah. Because what do you do if you want to slow it down? We typically raise taxes. What do you want to do if you want to stimulate your economy? You can cut your taxes. What it's done is it's distorted policymaking. So they become hugely over-dependent on the property sector. So land sales, property sales, because the only sort of source of and revenue- And that's for
2: finance local government, isn't it? So they basically, they, they sell bits of land to developers. The developers give them money that's the tax base. Yep.
1: So without a booming land market, you ain't got any more money. That's exactly right. And that is precisely the problem they face now. But the point is, this was a problem that it's it wasn't a great observation to see it coming. We've known this for 10 or 15 years. And they've done nothing. And they failed. So why are they failing? And because I've been observing this since, since mid-late 1990s, the first fifteen years was an extraordinary series of successes. But you may remember there was an amazing character, a Chinese policymaker called Zhu Rongji, in the nineteen nineties, who was notoriously outspoken. risk uh, had a, an extraordinary series of economic successes. I think his sort of portfolio was the economy, and he was responsible for an awful lot of the reform. But you know, he was vocal. He was outspoken. He argued, he, he was public he as well. Yeah. And that's gone. And if I just look at the plain facts and I go, something's not right here. And, and you think it's,
2: it's, it's deeply ingrained in the willingness of the average Chinese person to risk both financially, intellectually, politically, and say, this is the way we should go. Because they know that that will be clamped down on because it will be seen as dissent.
1: That's right. I'm not convinced that you can have a continental scale, wealthy economy with a huge concentration of power in ultimately one individual. I'm not sure that actually is stable or can work. The examples, when people look at places like Singapore, you've got to be careful. Yeah, Singapore is a city state. Right? Yeah, You can have perhaps successful economies where you don't have political freedom, but they're probably only viable on a very small scale. China is the largest continental economy in the world. If it is successful, power will be dispersed. I find it very hard to believe that it can simultaneously be successful and maintain the hold of power that they've tried to achieve.
2: Eric, this has been a groundbreaking series. When you get me, and listeners will know, silent rather than excited, you know there's a totally change of mood in the room. And uh, and it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful.
1: Eric, brilliant. Talk to you soon. Take care, David. All the best. See you soon. Cheers. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
0: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, actually throughout this whole series, Mac, there's been some brilliant points, but actually one thing that Eric said
2: in this last wreath lecture... <laughs> the wreath the lectures, exactly. <laughs> but the Coming one thing, from the basement <laughs> in Dunleary, <laughs> is the wreath lectures. But the one thing he did
0: say that I find, it, it's really curious, I'd never really thought about it before, is... A successful economy competes with politics, yeah, and therefore you know, like the millionaires and billionaires, company owners become power brokers within the economy, and of yeah. course that's true. But I hadn't really thought about it.
2: Well, it's it is true. It's also like I always think that every billionaire is a policy failure, right? Right. That having Go on. Bi- well, having billionaires is a ludicrous idea. Having one person having a billion euros and the next person having ten. Thousand euros is a it's a failure of policy. Yeah. Okay. and I really believe that. I think people have being billionaires is ludicrous. You seem sort of commie? No. It's a you know, it's an affront. To, it's an aff- it's actually the opposite. It's an affront to the efficient workings of the economy. And the reason is the following: is that all businesses tend towards monopolies. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you want to have one well, of the biggest podcasts, right? Yeah. But think about it, right? No. All businesses tend towards monopolies, and monopolies, by definition extract rents out of people and will bully the market and will produce maybe not the best goods and all that sort of stuff. And there's no greater personal embodiment of monopoly than a billionaire. If you think about it, right? Some person having all this money, right? As I've always said, and a billion is a thousand million. It is far better off for the society to have a million people with a thousand quid spending than one person with a billion. And the reason is that rich people hoard money. So the richer the billionaires get, the more money disappears from society. This is the bizarre thing. Mm. So in actual fact, it's not even communism. It's about the efficient running of society. You cannot have a flamboyantly dissenting, disruptive economy with billionaires because by very definition, they are monopolists, Mm. right? So that's what I think. Well, that's an aside. The second idea
0: is well, unless of course they're they're investing in young startups and all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, but again, you know, having the the income of young startups accruing to one fat cat to one geezer, sure, yeah, yeah, it's just silly. Like mm. it's, I mean, I'm not saying you should go around and do the Marie Antoinette on them and say if you're not, you know, see that sharp thing there yeah, off yeah. at your head, right? I don't, I don't believe in the Robespierre approach. Yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to life, okay? But I do think that billionaires, is it's a fairly silly idea. Yeah. And it's kind of an affront to my sense of democracy. There was a guy called Brandesh, who was an American jurist and a very, very brilliant judge and a, an advisor to FDR. And he said, you can ultimately have inequality or democracy, but you can't have both. And what he was meaning is that at the end of the day, democracy bends towards equality. It has to. Right. Yes. I I think that was Martin Luther King, was he saying? The great arc of history bends towards justice or something like that. Right. Yeah. So democracy has to bend towards equality. And billionaires are an affront to equality. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, but what Eric is saying, and it's true, is that politics and big business do eventually come up against each other. Because both are power bases, right? And in the case of China, what Xi decided was that he would bring big business to heel. Yeah. So all those Alibaba guys and all those people, he brought them to heel. And it's a very interesting point. And it comes back to all sorts of things. If you read history like Cato and all these people against Caesar, there's always a moment where politics is corrupted by powerful influences And then the pendulum swings away from powerful influences and goes back to some sort of more egalitarian Mm. set piece. And then we start again. And I I think that that's what Eric's saying. But one of the the other things he's saying is that, and this goes back to Hayek, which is that the quality of information in a centralized system is much less good than the quality of information in a market-based system. And in fact, speaking of big businesses and billionaires, there's always that expression that the quality of information deteriorates as you get closer to the boss. And the reason right. is the following <laughs> because everyone's afraid of the boss, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, everyone's yeah. afraid of the boss. They're all saying, oh, I agree with you. That's a great idea, right? Yeah. So basically the boss is bullshitted. And then I think this is what happened to Putin. that basically everyone spoofed him all the way up. So yeah. that the army's great and we can take over Ukraine and la la la. They'll bend over in two minutes, right? So, but the essence is, that if we go back to, and we conclude here, to the most flamboyantly innovative republic of all, it was the Dutch Republic in the late 16th century, right? Now, there was a huge consistency between innovation and dissent and tolerance and the economy. And the idea, as I always say, is the most fascinating economic machine in the world is not a coal mine or a steel mine or a nuclear power station or... Uh, motorway. Mm. It's this mad little soft thing between our ears called the human mind. That's where everything comes from, Mm. right? And the human mind grows on dissent. It thrives on debate. It thrives on diversity and disruption. And if you take that out because you suppress it with an autocratic system, eventually that bit of the human mind that is creative commercially which is associated with a bit of the hum- human mind that's creative artistically and emotionally, whatever, mm, mm. that will become emasculated. And once you emasculate the human mind, the economy's over.
1: only from rustolium